Hi, I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Joe Dolce's quest for a happy and balanced life has brought him to cannabis. In his best-selling book, Brave New Weed, the one-time Details Magazine editor tells the story of how his love for the plant brought him the personal fulfillment that had been eluding him. A presence on the cannabis circuit, he's on a mission to educate the educators, the nurses, health practitioners, the bud tenders, the people tasked with ministering to the growing needs of medical marijuana patients. We're old friends and fell into comfortable conversation. As one thing led to another, we talked about everything from Kim Kardashian causing CBD shortages to the lack of diversity in the industry, especially in the LGBTQ community, and how you have to get out of New York to know anything about cannabis. Hi. Joe Dolce is my guest today. Hi, David. We're old friends. And How old, David? Very old. <laughs> but we're still millennials at heart. You know? <laughs> Our paths have crossed in several places over the years, and now here is like a kind of a new space for us to be talking. It's funny. We first came together when, we were, when I was writing about the AIDS crisis for paper, right, in the 1980s. I was going to say that, but I should actually trace it back to earlier than that. Area? Yes. The nightclub days of New mm -hmm. York in the 1980s. Yes, that's it. But let's before we get there, let me introduce you a little bit, give you Thank a little you. bit more of a uh, set you up, as they say. Before you started Medical Cannabis Mentor, before you started Joe Dulce Communications, before you wrote Brave New Weed, before you served as Editor-in-Chief of Details Magazine, before we worked together at Paper, where you wrote the first aforementioned column about the nameless epidemic that we now know as AIDS. Before all that, we met when you were working as a publicist for the legendary New York Downtown Club area in the 80s. The 80s were a notorious time in New York of drug excess <laughs> and every other excess. <laughs> what was your attitude to weed then and how did it change? Um, it was it was a time of excess, and my attitude towards weed then was I I used it all the time. As a matter of fact, it was a it was a different plant. It was an easier plant, I think. But it really powered me through most of my years in high school, and college, and graduate school, and really my first my working life. Also, I, I was a huge daily imbiber. As a matter of fact, were you? Uh, probably more or less. <laughs> Do I you remember? I could follow that trajectory. Uh, so it was a really intimate relationship, actually. That said, I knew nothing about it. Okay, all I did was get it, use it, roll it up, use it some more. You know, da -da 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 -da. nobody I, did. And then you also anything. roll up the seeds and the stems. Well, and... no. First, you had to open your album cover <laughs> and and, dri and drop the seeds down and pull out the stems. If you remember, that was the point of the whole double album, wasn't it? Right. Right. Yeah. So, so I used it. I was a user and just like a dumb user, and that was fine. There was no knowledge that I 
could clue into at the time. And that was interesting because once I stopped using a bit, a lot actually, I, you know, basically in probably around 2000, I pretty much stopped using weed for lots of reasons. It had become too strong. It was making me uh, too internal, too interior, a bit, bit down, a bit depressed. I don't know. I just, it just wasn't suiting my my phase of life, so I, I sort of stopped then. So I had a, I've had a very different. But you, were, you know, you were able to say that was the cause of it. I think it just wasn't Not making really. me feel alive. It wasn't making hmm. me feel, you know, in, when I was younger and like in the eighties or my twenties and my early thirties, it it made me feel sparkle. It gave me fizz. I felt like it enhanced my creative being, um, and it did. As a matter of fact, it wasn't just my feeling about mm-hmm. it. I mean, it was a really useful thing. I also think it helped me come out of my shell as a person. Like I was awkward kid, and you know, it gave me it gave me comfort. It gave me solace. It, it gave me. A, some sense of, yeah, I would say comfort. And, and it was a useful thing. Um, anyway, so like in, in the early 2000s, I pretty much stopped. And then in around 2012, as I write about in my book, my, my brother-in-law actually started growing and gave me something called Super Lemon Haze. And I had been out of it for a long time. So I didn't know about strains and varieties and, or anything. And I loved it. And I thought, man, why have I forgotten about this thing. So I, that's when I started re-exploring again. And that's what led me to write Brave New Weed. So I've had a, I would say I've had a, a really dimensional relationship to cannabis. And I think nobody talks about that. Like, no, we don't really talk about, oh, you can go out, you can use it a lot, use it a little, and it's all fine. Right. You know, and it's all acceptable. In fact, yeah, there's the question I was even thinking about earlier, which is, in cases where they've legalized heroin, let's say, in, in Switzerland and, and other places, that people it doesn't really lead to a lot more use of heroin. It just Actually, basically it leads to less. Or less even, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's no real reason to think that just because it's going to get legal here, everyone is going to start, like, smoking their head off. Uh, there's evidence right now, in my mind, that people are coming back who, like you were just saying, stopped for a period of time because of all the stigmatization and they had kids or, you know, yeah. different circumstances made them not really feel comfortable in that space. But now they're like, oh, man, I just tried it. It's so great. And especially the CBD. So there's a couple of things there. Um, there is evidence that actually when you legalize, what happens is there's a small spike up and then it drops down. And Portugal is the main body of evidence. They decriminalized all drug use, I think in 2004, long time ago, really to cut the cost of incarceration, <laughs> a really smart idea, and instead uh, substituted it with rehabilitation and, and health. And their costs drop way down. And Portugal now has some of the lowest drug use rates of all countries. Ditto Holland, as a matter of fact. Holland has the lowest rate of teen use. And it's been decriminalized there since, what, 1982, 86? I can't remember exactly. So that's quite an interesting fact. But people are finding different ways to use the plant, I think, at different phases of life, right? And and now that it is legal, we can, in a way, talk about it more, more openly, have podcasts about it and, and not feel threatened, right? So there's a lot more exploration, I think, that's that's happening now. And yeah, especially people our age who've gone away from cannabis and come back to it, they almost have to, re- it's, it's almost like getting a new lover, 
or getting an old lover. Maybe you have to. Re- <laughs> maybe it's like getting an old lover. You have to. Re- it is actually. You have to reestablish the connection, and you have to find a way to be with each other. You know, that's really comfortable because because you know what that old lover can do. You know his or her bad <laughs> sides, right? And, and when you're a little older and wiser, you learn how to sort of navigate around them. And I, mm-hmm. and I think it's the same with cannabis too, really. You got to find a new way to approach it, a new way that works for you. It's interesting here in New York that we were kind of out of it, I feel, for so long with the medical marijuana because it had been legalized 10 years already or more in, in California. Since 96, Nine, oh, over so 20 years. Almost 20 years already. And from the beginning, I always suspected, oh, this is just a ruse. It's going to allow all these people who really want just to get high to get like a a bogus card from a doctor who would just sign off on a prescription. And that would be it. However, it seems like it hasn't really worked out that way, that the medical side has really exploded. And now people are looking at it for all kinds of potential benefits in a way that I don't think anyone anticipated. I, I think it's yet to explode. I mean, I, I think it's beginning, and I think people our age and anybody really over 40 is starting to understand, hey, you can, you can use this botanical plant medicine for pain, for insomnia, for stress, you know, for life, for relief from life, basically. And that's a great thing. It grows in the ground, and it's not fatal. It'll never kill you. You know, you may have a screwy relationship with it, but you can work that out, basically. Certainly no more screwy than your relationship with alcohol. I mean, even as it's identified today as a high, as the the primary reason for doing it, and if you look back historically, you know, the thousands of years people have been using it in all different ways, that's not really like the primary even. No. You can look at medical cannabis in one way. You can look at the high as a side effect, right? Right. So one of the courses we're going to do in Medical Cannabis Mentor is called Relief Without the High. It's for people who really need to function every day, but who have pain, stress, insomnia, right? And they don't really want to be altered. They want to go through the... So for me, okay, as a writer, like I can't, I can no longer smoke and write. Again, when I was in my 20s, it powered every essay I wrote in college and got me a 4.0 average, okay? It ain't that way anymore. Now I can't I can't get to the end. Of, I can't get to the period, okay? <laughs> there are so many valleys and ups and downs. If I'm high, I'm just never going to get it done. So I can't function with being high and working every day. It's just like that's life. Uh, more vulnerable maybe towards it. And we don't know if that is the case. I have a theory that the endocannabinoid system of receptors in the body does change as you age. And, and I feel more susceptible to all intoxicants, all foreign substances I put in my body. I think it basically takes me less to, get, to feel good, essentially. So I got to modulate that. We're just learning now that you can really play with how you take the plant and the various strengths and milligrams and how to dose it so that you can really almost design the relief or the high or the effect you want. And and by the way, I don't disassociate a little enhancement or a little a little high with part of feeling well. Sometimes it's great. What's wrong with that? Fact, yeah, what's sometimes wrong? it's Being just in a good mood. really like, oh, I'm in a much better mood now. Thank you very much. That helps my whatever yeah. you call wellness. State. But when you started your book, I get, as I was reading it, you were not Thank convinced. You. You're skeptical, I felt, as you were going along. 
were you trying to disprove this this all these theories or, no, or I think just it was born of ignorance really I always just thought of like when my agent said you should write a book on weed I told him that I was smoking the super lemonades and he really mm. and I really loved it and he said oh I've been smoking pot for years Joe you should write a book on it and I said but Bob like what's there to write about it's just weed and he said look into it and that's where when I decided yeah I think maybe I should look into it actually because I know shit about this. I don't know anything about this. I think I know everything. And I actually think it's 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 part of the problem of rebranding what we called pot. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like everybody thinks they know it because they've used it. But when you start looking at the, you know, the 400 active sub compounds in the plant and how some of them we don't know anything about because they exist in such small quantities when they're grown, this gets quite interesting. And like for example, I've, I've been looking into something called THCV, which is a, what they call a minor cannabinoid, not in terms of its effect, but minor re- refers to the amount that's produced in the plant. And the research shows that it's an appetite suppressant, THCV, okay? And you think, wait a second, here's something that grows in the ground, is not no way fatal, and could be a diet supplement? <laughs> like, that's a business beyond belief pharma has not been able to crack it because it's part of the cannabis plant and cannabinoids are challenging for pharma at this point in time but boy get me some of those seeds you know i know an awful lot of people who want to take them right and and as part of your travels uh, writing the book part of the fascinating figure for me is this doctor he went to israel yes right because why israel what well, Israel is, I had some pretty adverse effects when I took my first dab. I actually, you know, puked my guts out for a very long period of time. It was a very long, uncomfortable evening. And I woke up in the morning, I was fine, but I woke up in the morning thinking, wait a second, cannabis is, in the medical literature, is called an antiemetic, which means it stops nausea. And as we know from the AIDS crisis, people with HIV used it all the time to stimulate mm-hmm. appetite and to stop the effects of these pretty rough drugs that were taking a toll on their bodies. But so if it was anti-nausea, why the hell did it make me puke to that extent? I mean, it was a mess. Hmm. And I started Googling, and this was sort of like uh, maybe 2013. And there was really no answer that I could find. What I did find is that the research that was happening was taking place at Hebrew University because the man who first isolated THC and CBD, cannabidiol, is Dr. Raphael Meshulam. He's now 88, a biochemist at Hebrew University and has steadfastly been exploring this plant, all the cannabinoids, since 1964 when he first isolated THC. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to really understand this thing, I need to go there and I need to talk to this man and all of the scientists in his lab, by the way, none of whom were under 50 years old. These people have been working on this for years in near obscurity because of prohibition. Of the prohibition here, you mean? And around the world, by the way. Around the world. Around the world, yeah. Yeah, they've done great science and it's replicable and... You know, it's all there. But look today, most doctors, they don't know what the endocannabinoid system is. It hasn't been translated into popular literature or popular medical literature at all. And that's because of prohibition. Right. Well, that's the whole other subject of this whole brand new world that we're in with regard to how people perceive this this plant. Because if you look at our history alone, where, let's say, you 
go back to the 60s or the psychedelic period, and that's sort of the template for what it means. But the younger people today don't have that. They don't even know very much about it necessarily. They have a whole new group of references. Absolutely. For them, it's like hip hop. You know, it was such a powerful influence yeah. on the culture. Yeah. You know, the rappers were doing it on the videos. They were just doing openly. Talking about it. Yes. Yeah, and writing about that, it. Uh, you know, it was illegal, but there they were doing it. And obviously that culture has had a huge influence on everything else. I'm still wondering why, maybe you have the answer to this, why, where's the mellow, <laughs> where's the mellow sound that goes with the weed that we've, we're familiar with from we California need, from back in the day? We need a lot more of that, don't we, man? <laughs> that's, what's, that's what's hitting me, yeah. I want more of that. <laughs> no, you know, given the anger that's a part of it. Yeah. Uh, and it also involves a lot of smoking, but it doesn't seem to have oh, I have a, a piece I, of love vibe. Where I, is it? I think it's in every musical form. Cannabis and music are so related. Mm. You know, jazz, people from all across the spectrum of music have have used cannabis not only to compose but somebody once said that it, some some jazz musician said it helps me find the space between the notes and i thought that was first of all well said and and very accurate actually yeah there you was know? a lot uh, fab five freddy was a guest on my first podcast and the documentary he made is on netflix right now it's called grass is greener and it's full of references to music. You might enjoy yeah. that. Just oh, I'm going to have a look, see definitely. what the musicians are talking about, how its effect, and it, it's it's one of the best parts of his documentary. All the music. Well, I just want to say one thing about prohibition, which is so interesting. <laughs> In our lives, we only grew up with prohibition, but when you really look at cannabis, it has five thousand years of medical use, and only the last eighty have blotted that out. Right, they've blotted it out completely. So it's really the last 80 years that are the aberration, right? 5,000 years of history, people across the world have known that this thing has good uses and has broad uses also. And that's what's so fascinating. That's how effective propaganda can be, by the way. Totally, right? yeah, that's such a big part of what happened to us. I feel like we were traumatized, driven <laughs> underground. Yeah, I mean, no. seriously, that you know, this whole stigmatization, the stoner image that's out there yeah. that people identify, and even today they still have it as very much part of the image of someone who smokes weed. And a lot of people had to live underground. You had to hide. You had you to did. do all these things. That... Oh, uh, okay. So, A, that was one of the main reasons I, I, I wrote Brave New Weed was to give people who use the plant the reason that they use the plant, right? They need to talk about it. Mm. When I first started writing it, so I'm a consultant and I work in the corporate world sometimes and I have clients. And I thought, uh-oh, they're going to – like I disappeared for a year to write this book, right? And they would say, what are you doing? Yeah. So at first I sort of obfuscated and sort of danced around. And then I thought, oh, shit, fuck it. And I started telling people that I was writing this book called Brave New Weed. And to the one, they all said, God, I love weed. Like, what are you smoking? Can we talk about that? Like, that's so interesting. <laughs> and I'm talking to people in finance, in communications, in advertising, in biochemistry, all across the board were really interested in the topic. And even if they weren't using, they were interested in the topic. So it was a great, uh, another coming out. I feel like my life is a series of coming mm -hmm. outs, really. But that was another <laughs> big... <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, too. we'll get to that. But, you know, uh, uh, when you start telling people, even my mother, mm. what are you doing? I'm writing a book on cannabis. Oh, that's terrible. Why are you doing that? Well, Mom, I'm going to give you a pain patch. One day, my mother was feeling sort of depressed and a little achy, and I had a 
10 milligram pain patch from a company called Mary's Medicinals and I put it on her arm and she was depressed. And then I come back in a couple years, a couple uh, hours later, and she's singing along to Tony Bennett songs. Uh, and I hadn't heard my mother singing in five years. Mm. And then I said to, then I left, and I said to my sister, "How's mom doing?" She said, "Well, she did the dishes today." <laughs> my mother, who had lost her sight, was standing up and doing the dishes. And I said, "Oh my God, that's amazing!" So the pain patch even helped my mom, and because she wasn't smoking a joint, she was able to accept it as a positive thing in her life, which is pretty pretty touching and pretty amazing. Right. Don't you think? It is. It is. That's a, I can see a testimonial for the commercial <laughs> for that product coming up. <laughs> Got me dancing again. Yeah. I want to know about this medical cannabis mentor program that you started along with uh, Dr. June Chin. Chin, who's based in New York. So she's amazing because she uh, is a doctor of osteopathy, an MD, who trained in California, but she was also a patient. She started in the 1990s using CBD for an arthritic condition of her back, the name of which I can never pronounce. And trained in California, worked in California, saw over 10,000 patients there. And she's a girl from the Bronx, and she and her family decided to move back in 2014 to sort of help ignite the medical cannabis program here. So we met and I had written the book, and I thought there's this vast knowledge out there about how the medical uses of cannabis. And it's more than take two tokes and call me in the morning. It really is, there's evidence of how to use this thing. And uh, there was a great gap, obviously. Healthcare providers, almost to the one in America, know nothing, but nurses, Doctors, wealth, wellness people, wellness coaches, health coaches, physiotherapists all have an interest here. And they could all benefit from knowing about medical cannabis and how, how, it, how it's applicable. At the same time, I felt that we patients, people who use this thing, don't really have protocols. We don't really have ways of using it that make sense. It's too abstract. It's too vague. It's, you know. And I've always had a thing that I want to... My, my life and my career has always somehow touched the generation I'm in, okay? So now that I'm way past being a post-millennial, I, I just know that everybody my age suffers from either pain, stress, or insomnia. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's just part of our lives. And probably most people over 40. I think it's, they're finding it even in younger people. I think they are, size, yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, it has to do with digital disruption. It has to do with a million things. Income disparity, you know, just the way our world is moving. This is not a cure for the way our world is moving, but it is a way to help us manage. I sort of took it on with June and was like, let's bring this information to the people. Let's bring it as widely as we can. So, so we started Medical Cannabis Mentor, mentor uh, with three courses, one for professionals, healthcare providers who really want to learn. And we've had great feedback. Mostly um, nurse practitioners in Canada have taken the course. Mm because that's the way their system works. A few doctors, a few medical people here, but most of our clients have been from Canada. We've had great feedback. I'm really pleased so with that, it. So they should be able to know how to prescribe or how it The system works. in Canada works. So in order to get a recommendation, you have to see a medical professional. And they know very little. But nurses are amazing because, well, I'm the son of a nurse for one thing, but they really have a lot of frontline patient care, right? In, in, in this system, in Canada, most patients are seeing nurse practitioners. It's cheaper, it's easier, 
nurse practitioners are more hands-on than doctors in a lot right. of cases. And we're not talking for not necessarily life-threatening illnesses. And in most cases, nurses are very capable of seeing, diagnosing, and knowing it to refer you to a doctor. So that's the way the system works in Canada. And I feel like in, in the United States, also, it's going to move in that direction if you're, in a, if you're in a medical state where medical is taken seriously. So we did a course for medical professionals, and then I did a second course for dispensary workers because it, for my mind, it's insane to go into a bud tender and say to some 20-year-old, hey, I've got a pain condition or I've got an arthritic condition. What do I take? I've tried it. It's it's almost impossible. But and they're not allowed to as well. They can, they? they can say things like, patients have told me I see mm, it th- right. that they get good results from this, but they're not clued in. They really don't know. It's like it's like the waitressing of today. No disparaging to waitresses or to butt tenders. <laughs> but it's a job that you get out of college, basically. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be elevated as a profession. So we created this course for bud tenders, dispensary agents, patient care representatives, whatever you want to call them, okay? And again, the feedback has been fantastic. I also, because I'm a comms, a communication consultant, we also included coursework in how do you talk to patients? How do you get them to, to reveal things to you? How do you? How do you flex your communication style to theirs, basically, right? So it's it's the beginning of that. And then the third course is this relief without the high course, which is for patients, how to self-medicate. Basically cannabis is a, a safe compound to use. It has never killed. There's never been one case of death, a fatality in record in 5,000 years of recorded history. Okay. So it's, That's always the first time. I man. would say it's gone through a pretty, pretty big safety trial. Okay. So even, and June, the doctor says, you know, the whole point of cannabis is that patients can learn to adjust their doses to get the relief they want. They don't really need the doctor in the beginning, if it's, especially if it's not for a, a, you know, a terribly serious illness, right? I mean, if you're dealing it with using it for cancer, it's a whole other story. You need a lot of healthcare people around you. But if you're using it for pain or insomnia, you can play, and, and you can play effectively. But you do need some guardrails and you need some guidelines. So that's what the third course will be. Eventually, that course will be tied to a digital app that will that patients can use to guide themselves to proper meds, to track themselves, and in, in certain places like Canada, lead them to the dispensaries where they can get the meds. So they which is be really neat and easy and take out a whole layer of complexity that's currently involved. So do you imagine a time where where there will be a one size fits all concept never or never so you would have let's say a package where you buy like multivitamins for That's example exactly right you'll have and each one will be for oh my back pain here's the best possible combination yes other stress yeah other so, things like that and you'll be you'll be varying this, this takes it into a whole new level but you'll be varying the system of delivery the method of administration for example we know when you inhale you get instant relief it doesn't last that long, but you get instant relief. It lasts two, three hours. That's it. If you use an edible a form of ingestion, okay, it takes two hours for it to kick in because it has to go through various systems of the body. But that, that, those effects can last six to eight hours. So you can mix and match your inhalation 
with your in, with your ingestible and get some pretty long-standing relief to get you through the night, for example, or get you through the day. Do you think there would be also like particular strains developed to deal with certain... There are already. Already? There are. Strains are, again, useful for inhalation, but when it comes to an edible or an ingestible, mm. they're not that they're not that important because all of, most of those flavonoids and plant compounds are, are taken out of it or they get taken up into the digestive system and pushed through the liver, which means they get expelled, basically. So we, what we're really looking at in ingestion is milligrams of THC and CBD. We're not so concerned with the terpenes, the smell molecules uh-huh. that give the strains their unique characters and cause lots of the psycho- psychoactive effects. And I love strain. I love strains. I love thinking about strains. I love exploring pinene and limonene. Those happen to be my two favorite terpenes, as opposed to the California OGs, which love myrcene and beta caryophylline. I like the, the higher, more mind-stimulating terpenes. So I love all that. But in terms of medical use, it's going to be hard to sort of manage that stuff so much, but the app should be able to discern. You know, when this stuff is all legal and you have a barcode and you're, you're, you can flap your barcode in front of your, your screen, it'll, it should give you a compound analysis. Like if you're in a legal state, you look at a testing result, you can see there's this much THC, this much CBD, this much limonene, pinene, blah, 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 blah. It's in quite interesting. Plant. Yeah, in each batch. Basically, you know, and be, and listen. Here's the other thing about strains that you got to remember. It's like wine. You can grow a strain in California, and you can grow a strain in New York, and they are going to be very different animals. It's like growing a Burgundy in France and growing a Burgundy in New York, they don't taste the same at all. Yeah, you mentioned wine, which I, I was thinking about as well. With it's a terroir, right? The land matters, and you know, there's this big conflict right now between the farmers, the small farmers, the potential craft weed industry versus big companies that are growing these in mass like bulk 100,000 square foot grows yeah right so do you think those are going to live coexist or will the uh plant the farmers the smaller farmers have a product that's more suitable for specific things because the big guys aren't going to be able to spend all that time you know genetically modifying and and growing and give all the care and attention that these plants, because it's it's a very labor-intensive plant, Super right? labor-intensive. It's hard to grow. It's a pain in the neck. You have to um, really watch it. I, I think it's going to end up like the beer industry. That's how I think about it. That's, how my, that's my prediction of it anyway. So first of all, all beer is basically owned by three companies, right? Even small craft breweries. Yet the big companies wisely let the small craft breweries do their thing. They know that there are people who love that Lagunitas IPA, right? They love it, and they love the flavor of it and the taste and whatever. So they're not messing around with it. But it's all owned by Heineken, say. So what's happening now is there are small farmers, uh, especially in uh, Upper Mendocino and Humboldt County of California, and they do amazing things. And they really are able to support themselves on cannabis. They call it the fulcrum crop. You can keep growing tomatoes and bell peppers and cilantro, but really cannabis, that's going to keep you alive. Okay, that's going to keep dinner on the table. So they're able to grow it, and they have a history of 40, 50 years of they call heritage strains. They've been growing similar strains that haven't been mushed and crossbred a million times. So it's it's not just a genetic mush. It's actually fairly, fairly stable and fairly old. Um, and I love those strains, and I love those farmers, and I think they're fantastic. And there's a company called Flocana out of California that is 
distributing those small craft grown, sun grown organic cannabis products. But legal? Legal. Okay. And they're distributing it to various dispensaries and they're marketing it really well. And there's billboards in California saying things like sun grown isn't for everybody, but it's amazing. You know, I don't know. They say amazing. They say good things. And I love those strains. They're reliable and they're quite, int- they're more interesting than the mush that you get, the crossbred strains. But I do think that you know, ultimately the big guys are going to consolidate and they're probably going to buy this stuff up. If they're smart, they'll let these guys go and they'll encourage them. I call them guys, women and men. They're women growers also who do amazing strains. If they're smart, they'll encourage them and enable them to keep the provenance of those of those seeds and, and those plants unique. And I think there's always going to be 10 to 20% of the population that loves that cannabis, Right who grow their own, who love their strains, who who know what's in them, who just treat them like their kids. That's the seems to be the new market that, you know, the foodies, the people who really want to know what's in the product, how it's made, where it comes from, the provenance, and the craft people can provide that. That's going to be their strength. And I, I was reading a book, it's called Craft Weed by a, a professor at MIT, which is, mm. makes a very strong case for farming nationally in the U.S. I mean, it could be international as well. But the, the point being that this could save the small farmers Absolutely. across America. That's what's happening in Humboldt. So I, I, when I was writing the book, I spent time on the Happy Days Farm in Mendocino. And the, the farmer, Casey O'Neill, was going around to all the illegal growers saying, guys, this is how we're going to survive. You're not going to survive on lettuce. It isn't going to happen. You could have acres of lettuce, and you're never going to make enough money to keep food on the table and support yourself. This is how we're going to do. We're going to. That's and that was the justification that he said why we should legalize and why we should join the system. Now, there's all sorts of regulatory mm-hmm. issues going on in California mm-hmm. currently that have nothing to do with that. But to me, it is it is the fulcrum crop that can keep small farmers going and. It just makes a lot of sense. It's happening all over the world, as a matter of fact, and more power to them. When, when I was in Vancouver, which is you know is like California and even precedes California because it had all those years where uh, the black market, the cafes, you know, people were kind of living the life, and, yeah. and even today, it's still a very mellow place. I've gone there a few times recently. Very happy to have become acquainted with my sponsor, Burb there shameless self-promotion yes thank you and <laughs> but while i was there's a point to this i know <laughs> which is that i went to the lift expo i don't know if you're familiar with lift not, but it's no. one of those expos where they bring in all of the people who do the back end of the business all the different machines that are being created to roll joints of which you know you never needed before but now you need machines that are rolling thousands of joints for the pre-rolls Somebody's invented one. You, I've you know, seen them. I've seen them. You drop the weed <laughs> in. It's like on a. It's like on one of those lazy Susans. It but this spins is like around, an industri- right? a giant. One oh I'm wow! About that oh wow! Does it like in thousands, not just for, oh, not just for your home <laughs> and other products. It, and it's a, a bunch of inventors really out there right That's now. So interesting. Trying to make you know how do you a machine to take the bud off the plant, which now is like pretty much labor intensive oh, hand yeah, work. It's hard, like, yeah. You know, so again, like the wine industry, where used to now now they don't stomp grapes; they do it, you know, mechanically, 
And so that's happening as well in this industry. And it was remarkable for me to see the sausage getting made and the mm. sausage being the joint, the final. I want to go to that fi- convention. When's it happening next? Uh, it it's happens several times a year, and uh, it's in Toronto as well. well let's go. Lift. Let's go and, together. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, it is. But, it, but it, it's, it says to me something else, which is that there's a whole more to the industry than we even see. Yeah. There's an industry. <laughs> There's all these like machines and things that are being created to deal the mass production of this product that has been done like by hand by small groups of people for yeah. so many years. Yeah. Have you ever seen an extraction machine? Yeah, they had. They're some. enormous. These things where they put all the they're like silos and then they squeeze it down ah, into, which mega. is uh, yeah, the CBD also. That's how they make the oils, right? You take that like takes mountains yeah. of hemp and squeeze it down. So uh, just to get back to an earlier point, just to want to clarify about when you were talking about all these strains. And so the CBD has nothing to do with that product, right? Well, that's not true. So it's con- the words are confusing, right? So there's hemp and there's cannabis. And really, it's all cannabis, right? Hemp is a, a low THC form of cannabis sativa. And then we further confuse it by calling hemp industrial hemp or hemp hemp, okay? So it's all very confusing. Uh, CBD comes from hemp. and So it doesn't matter the strain. It, it does matter. It does it matter. It matters to, to production a lot because there are high CBD varieties of hemp and low CBD varieties of hemp. So, for example, for some reason, hemp in Oregon is high CBD hemp. It's The farmers there have been cultivating it for years, okay? Hemp grown in states like Kentucky is known as crap. CBD level is so low, mm. it takes so much more to process. So that's labor intensive. It's just a waste of everything, okay? In other words, if you can grow the plant with a 5, 10, some plants 15, 20% CBD, you are you're get a much richer product, right? It takes much less to extract it and get it out of there. So that's the goal right now. And because hemp has only been legal in the United States insanely since Mitch McConnell made it legal last year, the industry is far behind the demand. So it's going to catch up in a couple of years, but we've got about five or six years. That's why the price of CBD is insane. It's It's crazy. It's insulting. It's a hemp product. Why is it costing me $99 to buy an ounce of it, even if it is 1,500 or 2,000 milligrams of CBD? That's insane, okay? And that's not going to sustain itself, right? This stuff should be almost like aspirin. Well, right now they're having – everyone's trying to figure out how to grow everything faster and package it quicker. And in the process, I think they're going to lose some – Oh yeah. I was just reading about one of these companies in Canada that bought uh, the, the licensing rights to a packaging system that's going to increase the, the speed of the drying of the weed. So instead of it taking three to five days to dry properly, now it's going to be done in one day. Or in six. an air vac, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, the question becomes, you know, you have a lot of cheap wines, you have a lot of expensive wines, could cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I, I can't imagine that not happening here that there will oh be... it's already happening you see you're seeing it happen you know going to the lift co- convention yeah. i mean that's the pro- that's the point of industrialization that's what's going to happen but is uh, the product going to be watered down don't the... you think yeah I well do. you know i mean i mean look, more reason can... for the crafts i'm just i think so i mean you can still compare like if weed grown in industrial grow 
is not the same as something grown in the sun. It has a smaller spectrum of light. It has less soil. There are many mitigating factors here, right? So when possible, I want to get, I want to know my farmer basically, right? So my favorite strain is called In the Pines. It's grown by one guy in o- in Ojai, California. We interviewed him on the Brave New Weed podcast. He's, he's like a hero of mine. And <laughs> I was just in California and I made a trip to Ojai from San Francisco to get the last bit of 2018's crop because I have never inhaled a cannabis quite so terpy and so rich and so high-minded, if you will. So you've um, become a connoisseur, obviously. I know what I love. Yeah, well, I've, you know, write a book <laughs> on weed. You're going to learn a <laughs> Or do things. a podcast. Or do a podcast. Um, and get out of New York. So you get a wide variety of experience, get to Vancouver, mm-hmm. and you're going to learn who the great growers are, or at least growing the strains that you really like, you know? And and that's why I talk about, you know, strains that are mush because they've been so hybridized and mixed over the years and nobody really knows what they are. So when you can find those heritage strains or, you know, I've never really smoked real Panama red or real Thai weed, but... I would love it. I think that's a worthy pursuit in life is to go and find those original genetics if you can and, and have that's that experience. That's the next book, Joe. Oh, my God. I'm original sh- genetics? Is that what yeah, it should be called? Yeah, to trek to find the perfect. I, I mean, I don't know if it's interesting, though. You know, it's like, because, again, what's interesting to me about cannabis is not maybe what's interesting to you or your wife or your husband or your whatever. You know, everybody has a different interest here. Like wine, really, right? Like, what do you like? What do I like? It's it's completely unique to your body, to your taste sensations, to your mood. Yeah, but it's... To the you food know, you're eating. Right, but like a good trek, it's more than just what the goal is. It's the, it's the getting there, the Maybe journey. Maybe it's the journey. We know about journeys. The journey, so we've been there. Before I lose track, because I, I apparently have lost track, and I just We haven't reminded, smoked anything. We haven't smoked anything, so we can't blame it on that. Well, maybe we'll get to it later, because I'll stay here, but before we leave, I want to talk about your days of details a little bit. Okay. Hear some gossip about that. Okay. Time, smoking. If I could remember anything. Smoking with Cy Newhouse. Come on. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> Four in the morning. <laughs> Oh, uh, you can talk. He's dead now. You could talk we about it. We spoke with lots of people, not, never with Cy. <laughs> um, I can't imagine Cy stoned. He was such an introvert that I'm sure cannabis would just button him up completely. Either that or he would just start laughing oh, no, hilariously yeah, or the other come way out of his shell. Yeah, that's what we would hope. That's what I should have done. I missed my chance. If you'd only known then, but you known. know now. Mm. Just continuing the Lift Expo product side of the story, and extending it into the culture. We talked a little bit about music, but products, design. You know, there's so much going on with the products related to yes. the pipe, the just different products, Bebo. The oils, the dosist. Yeah, there's so and, many different and Barney's products. has like a whole department now devoted, like a head shop <laughs> at Barney's, a high-end head shop. Coiffure shop. <laughs> so how do you feel about that trend? Oh, that very, very you? mixed. You know, very mixed. It's inevitable at this point. You know, design is a part of our lives, and I love good design. And by the way, you know, there are vaporizers that are just amazing products and beautiful things of engineering. For example, Stores and Bickle makes a convection vaporizer called the Crafty. Now, it's $350, 
but you inhale the flowers from that and the tastes, the richness of it is, is indescribable. And it's, it's unlike anything. So when I show people that they are, they're, they're blown away. Basically. What's it called? Again? It's called the crafty. And it's from crafty. the same people that invented the volcano. You know, people who are, you've seen the volcano, right? It fills the bag with vapor and you, you give the bag and it's unbelievable. <laughs> so you look at it, you first you think these people are crazy. And then you have the experience of that vapor and it is beautiful. So design can really make a great thing. And, you know, in a good pipe, it cools the, it cools the smoke before it gets to you. It, it, it doesn't burn the whole bowl. It just burns a little cherry. You know, there, there's a, there, design matters, of course. At the same time, it, it, you, you always have a little cringe when you go, oh, my God, is it Barney's? It's like, how mainstream is this becoming? And then you have to say, well, maybe normal. Normalization is probably the point. You know, we can't, you can't have it both ways. You can't have this thing that's special and illegal and in the dark and expect the world to accept it. So I'm, you know, there, there's there's a give and a take to all of this. I'm very yin and yang, very philosophical about it at well, this just point. To, what uh, do you think? Well, I'll tell you uh, what I'm reading here because I read an article that gave Kim Kardashian CBD baby shower credit for breaking CBD into the mainstream and cre helped create the shortages. Apparently there are shortages of CBD now. And, you know, she put it on her Instagram. She, she did a CBD baby shower. Did you know that? I didn't know that, no. Yes, she did. She did a CBD baby shower and that put it on her Instagram. It created this huge rush on CBD products. Wow, okay. And now here we are here with we a are. shortage of CBD. I don't think she's the only... Listen, I am sure illegality had a lot more to do with shortage of CBD than Kim Kardashian. Okay. The fact that no one could grow hemp in the United States until last year has a lot more to do. Well, with nobody it. expected the demand either. That's for sure. And that's partly what they give her credit for, sure. for helping yeah, I, create the demand. We're going to definitely give Kim some credit for that. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure she's going to have her own line pretty soon. Yeah. Right. Martha Stewart is doing something, isn't she? With Snoop, I think. I don't she, know if she's doing. No, she she's doing, doing her own thing. She is went she, to... I forget the name of the company, but one of the companies she joined their board. And yeah, she joined the board. It was Ac uh, was it Acreage? I can't and remember. And now she's going to, I assume, going to be making products under her name. Okay. Why not? Well, some people will find it appealing. It's not, Martha's Martha's magic is not going to appeal to me. No? Who's no. magic? Who would you like to see? I don't. I, I just like the farmer who's growing my in the pines. I don't need a brand spokesperson on this. I don't need... You know, uh, a micro-influencer. I know what I like and I know where to get it. Lucky me. But the branding is an interesting subject. Yes, it is. Around this product because there are no brands. I mean, there are well, some there that are. you know. California has many brands. Colorado has many brands, yeah. We in New York. We're but they're little, regional at this point. Uh, Multi-state, but, but limited, mostly West Coast, yeah. So we don't have like a national no. brands that people will all want to enjoy the moment trust <laughs> enjoy it while so it how is would you, if you had to build the brand what how would you approach it well you can't build a brand without a, an american brand yeah. you need legalization to okay, happen right say, so you need multi-state commerce look the brand i built is never going to be the biggest brand because i'm not interested in that i'm interested in what interests me which is quality and terpiness terpenes and a beautiful beautiful flavors and beautiful experience. I, and I, again, I tend to like the 
quote unquote sativa dominant strains, right? I like the ones that are more heady and more uh, sort of fire bursts of creative flow. That's what I like. Not everybody likes that. Right. You know, all those OG guys in California, they like that that indica, indica. heavy body stuff. They like their being on the couch sort of thing. It's not for me. It's uh what I, do you like? You know, I'm I don't even know the difference. I'm really so non-specific. God, I wish you had told me I would have brought you some well, options. Well, because we, we live here in a... the East Coast and I don't, you know, really have that many choices. Let's go on a California tasting <laughs> tour, okay? Do you think we can get Burb to sponsor us and we can... To we Vancouver can... and try some of that BC Bud. We could try some BC nice. Bud, which I'm not that familiar with. You know, I'm more familiar with the California strains and, and, and that, but we could do a whole left coast tour and we could have a tasting event in every city. <laughs> what do you think about that <laughs> idea, Burb? You like it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'll go for that. Uh, but being gay, me or you, you <laughs> not me yet, uh, is is something I, if you don't mind talking about, Love I don't to. think right. Happy to. You, you're, you've been many out, coming, many comings out. Remember? As you said, yes, you had many comings out. So, just curiosity: how is that? Is it different? How is it? You know, impacted that community? Is, is did you see? Is it has it evolved similarly with people being more discreet, feeling? You know, this isn't really cool. I shouldn't be doing this. And You're talking about cannabis or being queer? Cannabis. <laughs> Not being queer. I think it's, no. well, I think the coming out process is actually <laughs> fairly similar. Is it? Yep, I do. You have to tell a few people and get acceptance. And as that happens, you become more comfortable telling more people what you, how you use cannabis mm. or that you're queer. What was the question? Uh, just in the community, is there a different sense of, you know, is it always cool? Was it something that also mimicked what was going on in the rest because it's, you know, it's known to have well, its, its fun side. That there people is something like to party. interesting I've noticed and there's no evidence, I have no evidence for this, but there's always been a large portion of gay people and lesbians and all sorts of other LGBTQ varieties, variants who've used cannabis. We have really kept the market alive in lots That's of places. That said, the industry is not representative of LGBTQ people, okay? There are, it's still bro, white boy culture, okay? It's changing, but it's not quite there yet. There are some companies in California that are specifically LGBTQ owned and operated. Oh, really? Yes, and they do great social equity programs, much to their credit, because a lot of the current corporate multi-state operators are doing none of that. As a matter of fact, they're fighting against it. You know that, that some of the larger multi-state operating companies in New York fought against home growing. They didn't want people to be allowed by law to grow some plants in their house. That's sort of a shame, isn't it? That speaks to me of a corporate culture that is we don't absolutely no. sort of at, at odds with its history. And you're basically saying, we're going to make it illegal for you to do it while we make billions off of doing it ourselves, right? I don't think so. So that offends me. I don't know how I got onto that tangent, but I think our people, our LGBTQ brethren, are not yet represented by the industry. We will be, obviously. We are huge consumers. And I think that, you know, we're going to make it quite clear, probably, we want some representation here. We're no longer a small minority, are we, you know, when it comes to consumer, no. when it comes to consumers. So um, I think we, uh, we'll, we'll make some stink. Right, because, uh, you know, that's an aspect I hadn't even considered, so I'm glad uh, we had a chance to talk about it. And I wonder why there aren't, uh, you know, people... I don't know why moving in there into that game. I don't know why. And it's probably because of prohibition in that 
you what you see mm. the public face of it is quite limited still right you know you go to i don't know you go to denver and the, the industry seems to be in a dispensary young you know young young guys mostly there are some women uh dispensaries women owned dispensaries i've come across but you got to look them you got to find them mm-hmm. you got to look for them so yeah. I think that'll evolve over time. But yeah, but it's that's good that we had a chance to, to talk about that, bring that up. Also, so, okay, so now back to details. Okay, I want to finish. You want to go to magazine gossip? Uh, yes, Blanche. magazine. So Joe Dolce, my guest here today, was editor in chief of Details Magazine, Condé Nast publication, very important fashion magazine. Was a, kind of a men's magazine young at this men's, point. Yes. Young men's magazine. What was the years for that? Well, I was there for a hundred years. I mean, I was there from the nineteen nineties <laughs> up until like two thousand and one. And I don't remember the year they closed it, maybe two thousand and eight they killed it. But so it was a seminal publication because it was really the first young men's style magazine on these shores, basically. England had done it with lad magazines in the nineteen eighties, but there weren't many Men's magazine, but no tits and ass. No right? tits and ass. Nope. Some tits. Some <laughs> ass. But not much. And and sort of, you know, well well uh, positioned, let's say. And Enough to allow So how was that in with in relation to who you were and what you were trying to do and how it was everything I was. It was so great because I was in my thirties at the time and um, we had an opportunity. We had a, we had a clean slate basically. And I was one of two gay editors on staff and we were able to bring those voices into the magazine. I wasn't a gay editor, but I mean, we were able to do a certain amount of gay stories, which at that point was considered sort of radical for a men's magazine because they were the provenance of white heterosexual guys. So we were able to do that, but we were right on grunge. We were right on lots of movements that were happening in music and cinema, independent cinema. Uh, these were, the, these were the, the glory days of that stuff. And it was, it was the stuff that I was really interested in. So it was really easy for me as an editor to be assigning and watching this stuff and participating in it from a journalistic point of view. It's a, it was a, you know, what a great privilege. We had it so good. When there were magazines. And there were a lot of ads. It was really a good, yeah, there were ads, and we were the only game in town. Did you see the new Rolling Stone? I saw Willie Nelson on the cover. With weed, it's all like a weed issue. Yeah. If you were editing details today, what kind of story would you assign on 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 cannabis? What would be, like the cutting edge something, (laughs) what else? The cutting edge, I would probably go and, and do that left coast tasting tour basically i'd like to know i think you could do an entire i haven't seen the rolling stone issue yet but you could do a fantastic travel piece on cannabis tourism uh you know you could start in colorado and went your way up and go through california up to oregon and it's just magnificent it's magnificent and you learn so much and you meet such a panoply of people. One great thing about cannabis is there's a lot of characters in it. Yeah. Okay? There really are. But not the new cannabis world. You oh, think it'll be similar? the corporate ones, maybe not so much, yeah. but they're characters in their own right. Well, that's right. what I'm afraid we're going to lose well, as part we, of the culture. We might. And what will we gain as part of the culture? Do you see any new culture? Like there's a new form of comedy. One of our guests, uh, Abdullah Saeed, has this show called The Shit Show in L.A. where it's kind of cannabis-related humor. Well, I, I saw, I just was in California and I went to the Spliff Fest. 
It's run by Dan Savage, who's one of my favorite writers and columnists and sort of prophets. And he he also started something called Humpfest about 10 years ago, which is an amateur porn cinema night. It's a fantastic thing. It was like my, the best night of cinema I've had in a long time. It was the culmination of 10 years of Humpfest. And what you see in porn that's made by amateurs is unbelievable. It's so much more interesting than the <laughs> porn most of us are looking at every day if, we're, if we subscribe to that. It's really fascinating and funny and ironic and full of narrative and just really great. So Spliff Fest is a, is a new version of that. And it, it's supposed to be like new films about cannabis culture. And I would say 50% of it was really interesting and fresh and successful. And the other 50% was, you know, sort of mumblecore, smoking a spliff on a couch, talking about shit, talking shit about shit. And was, I sort of been there, done that. It wasn't really my cup of tea, right? I think stoner stoner culture is probably going to go the way of the dodo bird over time. So that's either going to be a good thing or a bad thing. We may look back on it and say, God, I really miss Chichin Chong. Or it Chong. might just be... Pineapple Express should have won, won an Academy Award. We may be that point. Or maybe we're going to get to a more sophisticated, ironic thing where maybe cannabis isn't the joke. Or maybe it isn't the thing. Maybe it's just it's not just the like thing. It's just like normalization. It's just one of the things we have in life, like and I, wine. And I, or... and I have to say, I, I think that's a good thing. I'm, I'm coming down on the side of normalization, okay? It's more normal, so it's a little more bland, if you are, a little more vanilla, but it's okay. I don't want people in jail for this. You know, I, I want to be able to smoke what I want when I want it. I don't, I don't want to feel the pressure of the law. And if I was a person of color, I would feel like this is like, get those chains off of me again. People of color have been such an oppressed community for this. And yeah, it's just, it's not right. You know, the prohibition has to end. And if, and if, if things are a little less interesting for us because of that, so be it. I mean, it's just be the same thing with, I mean, you know, part of me thinks gay bars were probably a whole lot more interesting when it was illegal and you had the threat of the cops. It was more secretive. It was more furtive. You know, there were all sorts of languages developed. Okay, it's a little more bland now, but fuck, I don't want to be arrested for being queer. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> so I, I think it's the same trade-off. Thank you so much, Joe Delci. With those words, we'll end the show. Thank you, Thank David. You. That was a great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, Brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. 